0: Welcome everybody. I think we're going to start not a very big group here in the room. It's 1104 BC in chapter four and the Philistines are launching a major invasion of Israel. If you have that map that I've been using on page four of the notes, the invasion is from a town, or community called Aphek, which is in the very northern part of the land grant of Ephraim. Um, so this is a very significant invasion. It's the first major invasion. They've done all kind of punitive raids into Judah and Benjamin and so on, but now they're launching a significant invasion of, of Israel. Uh, Israel is camped at Ebenezer, which is not that far really from where we are. Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed 4,000 men on the field of battle. Devastating loss. And when the troops came to camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, please note that's Yahweh, here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. We did read this last week, but we're going to pick up there in just a minute. It's important to just review a couple of things. The tabernacle is at Shiloh. It has been at Shiloh almost, not totally, but almost since the nation was formed under Joshua. By by that I mean when the land grants were given out to the twelve tribes. A number of things happened at Shiloh. You might remember that's where Eli was located. That's where Samuel did his training earlier in this book. And so The elders, and when the phrase that we saw there, the elders at the end, or kind of the middle of verse three, uh, that's a term that involves a lot of different people, but it's largely the leaders of each one of the tribes, the leader of the clans that make up the tribes, and presumably the spiritual leaders. So, because when the Bible and the Old Testament uses elders, it's a broad term that involves a lot of people. So the point I'm trying to stress, and I think the point the text is making, is that the leaders, both political, military, and spiritual leaders, have a solution. Let's bring the ark into the battle. Now, let me ask you a question you don't necessarily have to answer. It's more of a rhetorical question. <clears throat> First of all, is that a wise decision? Is that a decision that That God would necessarily approve of and perhaps thirdly how are they treating the Ark how are they viewing the Ark how are they looking at the Ark okay a lot of people are talking here okay they're making an idol out of the Ark yeah like a talisman like a, a a cult of magic item if we just have that here it's like I think I mentioned this last week. I grew up with a, a baseball player who always carried a rabbit's foot whenever he played baseball. Yeah. I, I don't know probably something you don't even know anything about that, but that was when I was growing up was kind of important. Uh, guys did that. Or sometimes they have really, you know, some guys play, played baseball when I played baseball. They never, they never changed their socks. They always wore the same socks. There was something, quote, magical, close quote, about that. That's how these people are treating the ark, like a talisman. If I say talisman, do you know what I mean by that? Like a talisman, like an object of magic that can be worshipped. In and of itself, its presence will win. Uh, Let me put it very bluntly. They are trying to manipulate God. They're trying to control God so he'll do what they want him to do for their purposes. Now, It's probably correct to ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today from the Philistines? That's a legitimate question. But their response as they try to answer the question, the ark, is not something that the Lord is going to honor. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought. That verb brought literally is carried because it's used in the book of Leviticus of how the Levites are supposed to carry the ark. If you remember, on poles a very specific way. It's in Exodus and Leviticus, anyway. So that that verb is used there. So what that means is they're correctly moving the ark of the covenant of the Lord of Hosts. Now, please observe that as well. The ark of the covenant of Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of Hosts. That's one of the really important titles of God in the Old Testament. It can be embellished with this statement. He is the commander of the hosts of the armies of heaven. And so they are intentionally using that title, which is sort of like a military title for God in context for them. And then it adds who is enthroned on the cherubim. Now, I I don't have a, excuse me, an image or a drawing of it here, I could draw something on the board but I think you all know the ark is like a box, it's a rectangular box and it's got the poles in it to move it, but then on the, the top of it are two cherubim and their wings are touching that's what you're talking about okay, but they make this statement he is enthroned on the cherubim not really, where is God enthroned? in heaven This is a representation of his presence with them. As a matter of fact, when you study, like in the book of Exodus, it's referred to in the book of Numbers, the glory of God is manifested. Isham, you could see it. And it was the Hebrew word for that is the Shekinah. God isn't in that box, but God's glory is manifested in that box by the Shekinah, the glory that you could see. Visibly see, or presumably. So they're rolling all that in to what they think will happen when they bring the ark. We're going to win because of the ark. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now that should alert you to something. If these two guys are with it, that's not necessarily a good thing, because we learned a lot about them in previous chapters. So this is kind of where I rushed through this last week, but this is kind of where we left off last week. So they're trying, they, the elders of Israel are trying to manipulate God, control God, God, get God to do what they want him to do or what they think he should do. So now how is the Lord going to respond to that? Verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. In other words, that was, you could really hear that. Presumably, it was significant enough. And when the Philistines heard the noise in the camp of the shouting, <clears throat> by the way, that Hebrew word there for shouting is exactly the same word that's used in Judges 6 when they were encircling Jericho. It's, a, it's the same word. So this is a victorious shout. They said, this is they meaning the Philistines, said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? That's very unusual. You do not see that a lot in the Old Testament. You really don't. Hebrews is an ethnic term. It's a term that is used and it is apparently connected to Abraham's ancestor Eber, H-E-B-E-R, if you bring it into English. Anyway, it is a title or an ethnic title of the Jews, of the children of Israel. But it's just a little bit unusual that the Philistines are using that term. What the the camp, shouting the camp of the Hebrews means. So they're just using that. Some expositors think, I'm not sure I totally agree with that, but some expositors believe this is derogatory. This is an accusatory, derogatory, ethnic slur against the, the Jewish people. I don't know if that's true, but it's very unusual. And when they learned the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a god has come into the camp. Literally, it's an Elohim has come into the camp. So you could translate, because these guys that are saying this are polytheists, gods have come into the camp. Now, this statement, this declaration, <coughs> this pronouncement by them, reflects their worldview because they believed that their gods or any gods can be confined to a place, can be confined to an idolatrous object. So they would naturally fits with their worldview of things. Their gods are in the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods here, you know, the ESV has correctly translated it plural. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, in my Bible, I put several exclamation points about after that statement. Because that tells us something. What does it tell us? Even these Philistines knew of the exodus and all of the supernatural miraculous things that Israel's God had done. So in effect, what they're saying, again, this is their worldview as their gods did this to Egypt, their gods will do this to us. You follow me? That's really what they're saying. That's why they're afraid. Does it make sense? Now you you and I know they've got it totally wrong. God isn't in that box, and it's not God's, it's God singular. But that's beside the point, because these are polytheists who are saying this. So then their leader says, take courage, in verse 9, and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So this is setting us up for a second battle that now ensues. The first battle, Israelites, was 4,000. Look at the second battle, verse 10 and follow. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And it was a very great slaughter, for there fell of of Israel 30,000-foot soldiers, which is an extraordinary number. And verse 11 is what's really important. And the ark of God was captured. And the text says, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They were killed. And this fulfills what the man of God had said to Eli after all of the horrible things that his sons had been doing in Israel. Remember, go back and look at that. They're going to be killed. Here's the fulfillment of that prophecy. They are not not dead. So you have this, I mean, it's, it's almost an incomprehensible development in Israel's history. They've lost the ark. That... Now, remember the Ark. It isn't a talisman. It isn't some magic foot. The Ark was the key to everything they did. The Ark was the aspect and key of the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement, when the high priest sprinkled the blood and mercy. I mean, all of those things. It's the most important tangible aspect of what it means to be a Jew in 1104 B.C. They lost it. <clears throat> so I'm sure all of you are thinking this question, so I'll just anticipate. Why did God allow him to do that? Why would God allow the Philistines to capture the ark? He showed them that their faith was a false faith. It was <clears> this <throat> place.
1: And it wasn't placed in the it was placed
0: on a symbol of him. And looking at that symbol to a lens of superstition and occult magic. God's not going to be manipulated. But God also has a purpose, which we're going to find out in the next section. He is going to teach the Philistines something about himself. And that also... So God's God's in control. God's superintending all this stuff. He is going to teach Israel a lesson. but He's also going to teach... Philistine, something about himself. But before we get to that, the text wants to shift for just a little tiny bit back to Eli. Now Eli is a very old man. He's virtually blind. He's obese. He, he is waiting to hear because he had allowed the ark to be taken. Because Remember, he's in Shiloh. That's where he lives. He would <coughs> excuse me, he would have been superintending all the ceremonial stuff. That's what Samuel was involved with, and so on. There's no evidence in the text that he protested them doing this, that he tried to prevent them from doing this, but he's he wants to find out what happened. So, verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, which would be up north near Aphek. You can see that, northern part of the England of Ephraim. And came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is the uproar? The man hurried and came and told him. Now Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were set so that he could not see virtually blind. And the man said to him, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. How did it go, my son Eli said? He brought the news, answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phineas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. No matter how you look at it, that's not good news. That's not a good report. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for forty years. So obviously, and I, I think would, Eli's got to be one of the more tragic figures of the Bible. Although God used him in training Eli, uh, excuse me, Samuel, and all of that overall. Samuel's, excuse me, Eli's life is a tragic life. And so he hears this news, and and I I mean, I can't imagine everything that he lived for, everything that defined his life is gone. His sons are dead, the ark is gone. Very significant defeat for him personally. But there's something else that happens. And the text wants us to know this. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, there's Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. The the Hebrew, there I don't know all of your translations, but the correct way to translate that is she crouched. Because in much of the ancient world at that time, a woman did not give birth to her child lying flat on a hospital bed. with was her, her legs up. She's crouching. Do I have to explain that? I don't, I don't, I don't have to explain Squat. that. Huh? Squat. It's kind yeah. of squatting yeah. in a way. That's right. It gives more pressure on the abdomen. Yeah. You know. In some ways, it makes a little more sense than the way yeah. Gravity. we do it. In the West, but anyway, I'm not. I don't want to make a big deal out of that, but just ESV translated, she she bowed. It probably is more accurate. She crouched, and for her pains come upon her. I mean, she's is in the last moments of labor. The pain is very significant, and all that. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, "Do not be afraid, for you've born a son." So this is tragic too. She's going to die in childbirth. The Bible is silent. We don't know what the details are. We don't know what happened, but she's going to die. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named a child, Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed, literally. The glory has gone into exile from Israel. That is a very important statement. So the text is telling us this. To not only add to the tragedy of Eli's family. Here's his daughter-in-law who's going to die in childbirth, And his grandson, who's about to be born, is going to be called Ichabod. And his name is symbolic of what's just happened. The glory of the Lord is going into exile. The Shekinah will no longer be visible in Israel. Why? Because it's with the Philistines. So you have very tragic facts about eli and his two boys and now his daughter-in-law and the name of his grandson the glory of the lord has gone into exile exile from israel how tragic this is one of those and there are many of those this is one of those low points in israel's history <laughs> i mean really it's quite devastating low point they're looking at the ark as a talisman god Judges them for that. And the ark is taken, and the, the, the basic spiritual leadership is gone. It died. Now you'll see that's going kind to of quickly be replaced, but that's coming up with Zadok and Abiathar and all that. So it seems like the ark is really uh, solid, faith is deteriorated
1: from people of Israel. It's taken away, and their faith is the faith is gone. They're void of faith. Uh, and a God that historically may have been close to at one time, but they chose not to go
0: that way. <clears throat> yes, I think that's exactly right. In summary, that's exactly right. They're no longer walking with God in faith and trusting and having confidence in Him. They're treating Him as a God that can be manipulated, controlled for their own ends and purposes. God is not going to allow you to worship him or look at him, observe him, or in any way use and manipulate him. He's not going to let you do that. And so the text discloses with verse 22. The glory had departed from Israel, for the ark of God had been captured. That's devastating. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, in terms of all you know about Israel history up to that time, it's an unimaginable development. But it, it is an illustration of how low. We, we talked about that earlier when we were at Samuel. The word of the Lord was not heard in Israel. And then Samuel. Samuel comes, he's trained, and he becomes the prophet. It, that We learned earlier from Dan to Resheba, it was known that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. God is now speaking through Samuel. It's very interesting in chapter 4, isn't it, that Samuel isn't even mentioned the name of Samuel is not in that chapter. So it we don't know why, we don't know where he is, and we just don't know. That isn't the point, though. Because now the text, <clears throat> excuse me, now the text in verse 5 shifts back to the ark. We see the tragedy discipline of Eli, his two boys, and what has happened even now to the symbolic representation of his grandson Ichabod, meaning the glory has gone into exile. So now what's going to happen to the ark? Because obviously, I drew that on the board. I'm not going to do it again, but this last couple of weeks I had it on the board. The ark was the key to their relationship and walk with God. If there's no ark, there's no atonement for sin. If there's no ark, there's no covering. I mean, this is really serious. So God shifts back. When I say God, I mean the Holy Spirit who's inspiring this writing. Shifts back to where the ark is. In my notes, I wrote <clears throat> over chapter five, Dagon versus Yahweh. That's really what it is. It's Dagon versus Yahweh. Who's going to win? It's not Dagon. I guarantee you. But this is this chapter is so powerful because it is a tactile objective demonstration of who the true God is. And Israel's going to be reminded of that and the Philistines are going to be taught that. What they feared, that the God who had liberated the Jews from Egypt is going to make war on us, he's about to do that.
1: Jim, can I ask a question?
0: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> so, just
1: real quickly, going back to Ichabod, is that? Uh, I mean, I, I think if I understand correctly, Kabod means glory. So, Ichabod means no glory. And, that, that's what's, right. What, what's that's the a, origin of that? Is that a Hebrew word or?
0: Yes, I, 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 Ichabod. You mean yes, yes, that is Hebrew. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Thank you. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Very good. Now, verse one of chapter five. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And again, if you are following on your map or, or, or whatever, Ashdod is one of the five Philistine cities. Ashdod was an important city because that is where the main temple of Dagon is. D-A-G-O-N. Dagon is the chief god of the Philistines. Actually, can I give you a little bit of history? Actually, Dagon is an old Canaanite god. The Canaanites had many, many different gods, kind of had layers of god, and Baal was kind of at the top and all that stuff. But presumably what had happened, again, I think we had talked a little bit about this, the Philistines are originally from Crete. Crete. They were part of what were called the Sea People's Invasion in the 1200s. And they had moved into this area of what today you would look at that and you'd say, that's the Gaza Strip. That's right. Into Gaza and settled there, and that's where they developed their the center of their civilization. And they quickly adapt a lot of Canaanite rituals and Canaanite gods. And Dagon is one of them. Usually, although there is some debate about that, usually Dagon was depicted with the head of a man and the body of a fish. <clears throat> and that relates to, of course, being right alongside the Mediterranean and all that stuff. So that's Dagon. He is the Philist- the chief god of the Philistines. He's not the only god, but the chief god of the Philistines. And Ashdod is where one of his major temples is. So they brought it. I'm in verse two, the middle verse two. They brought it, meaning the ark, into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So I'm trying to picture this. Presumably, this is a building; it's a permanent structure, not a tent, a permanent structure. And here's Dagon, no doubt on a on a pedestal. It's rather large, massive god, and the ark is set right next to Dagon. Why would they do that? It's symbolic of how the ancient and eastern world looked at things. We just beat you in battle. Our God is greater than your God. And so they bring the symbol of the Hebrew God, the Ark, into the temple of Dagon, and sit the Ark right next to Dagon. We have triumphed. Dagon is greater than Yahweh. <clears throat> well... When the people of Ashdod, verse 3, rose up early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Oh, there must have been a little bit of a storm and knocked him off his pedestal. Verse 4, But when they rose early on the next morning, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, both his hands were lying cut off on the ground. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. Okay, you, you can visualize that in, in your mind's eye, can't you? What you have, if, if we're correct, kind of the body of a fish and the head of a man, the head's cut off, the arms are cut off, and this just this torso, of like a fish, is all that's left. Now, if you're a Philistine, him falling over the night before, okay, we can explain that. But you're never going to be able to explain this. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So when this was, text was written, which is a history written many years after it happened, The author is just reminding us, this really made an impact on the Philistines. As a matter of fact, there's an extra-biblical text that goes into the centuries after Christ, which says that was still followed in the first century. That's how much of an impact it made in Gaza. Because Dagon was one of the gods that was worshipped in all this for a long, long time. So this really made an impact, and it would. For goodness sakes, everything about their theology, our God just beat your God, now in the temple of Dagon, what's happening? Yahweh is demonstrating to the Philistines that that piece of wood isn't a real God. Verse 6 begins with this phrase, the hand of the Lord. That phrase, the hand of the Lord, is used nine times between chapter 4 and chapter 7 of this book. And the Lord, Yahweh, it's the hand of Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't have hands. But it's interesting because the hands of Dagon were cut off. The hand of Yahweh, that is used in the Old Testament as an I'm going to really impress you. An anthropomorphism. Aren't you glad I used that word? You're giving God the aspects of the human being. God doesn't have hands, but the hands of an individual can be powerful, can shape and create and mold things. The hands can be used as a source of power. So it's said the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now let me stop there for a minute. ESV, which is the translation I read from is translating that Hebrew word tumor. Now, the the part of the problem with that is how do we understand? Because you and I understand tumors through the grid of you know, 21st century medicine and all that kind of stuff. Here's where most expositors are with this. Coming up later in chapter six, we're going to learn that there were mice and rats in the Philistine camp. So many expositors are reaching the conclusion. The plague that God sent on the Philistines was the bubonic plague, which was, was carried by rodents. You know what I mean? So that that's a reasonable conclusion. I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but the term is tumors. That's really the correct way to translate it. <laughs> so throughout the Philistine city of Ashdod and its terror, because remember, these are city-states and they control all the land around them, are inflected with this, play, this plague. So what did they do? And when the men of Ashdod saw how these things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God be brought again to to Gath. And if you look on your map, that's another city, much farther south, kind of southeast of Ashdod. By the way, this goes forward quite a few years, but what great warrior is going to be from Gath? Goliath comes from Gath. Now, that, that's fast-forwarding to chapter 17, when David fights uh, Goliath at the Valley of Elah. Well, anyway, so what their, their solution is, let's take it to another Philistine city. So they take it to another Philistine city, Gath. So they brought the Ark of God of Israel there, verse 9. But if they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, second time that's used, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. Same Hebrew word as afflicted Ashdod, same thing as afflicting Gath. So they sent the ark to the god of Ekron. If you look on the map, that's another town. That's much farther north now, north of Ashdod, quite a bit north of Gath. So they're hitting all the major Philistine cities. Let's see what happens there. I don't know, if you were a citizen of Ekron, would you be excited about that? Don't send the ark here. I'm getting more excited. I'll calm down. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought us around to this ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. Now when it says lords of the Philistines, They're the kings, the leaders of the five major cities. Five major cities of the Philistines. We have been introduced to three of them. So they gather together in council, presumably in Ekron. It doesn't tell us that exactly, but presumably in Ekron. Here's what they say in the middle of verse 11. Send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there has been a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God, third time that phrase is used, was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Very interesting. So, God is sending a clear, measurable, observable message. I am the true God. Dagon is just a crazy piece of wood. I just cut him in shreds. And I am judging you. The Philistines make a reasonable observation. The Ark's the problem. and got it rid of the Ark. Chapter 6 is how the Ark gets back to Israel. All right, you with me? Any questions? They had to see it themselves firsthand um, what the results would be of treading on the so, But you've got to remember, these are polytheists. This is not going, to, for, as far as we know, this is not going to lead to them bowing down, worshiping the true Yahweh, and becoming Jews by convert. All they, through the grid of their worldview. We thought our God was greater than their God. Now we're not so sure. So we're going to send their God back to them. That's how they're looking at it. That's their worldview. That's their theology. But they also also believe we have to send something with the Ark to convince the Hebrews and to convince their God that we're serious. Let's look at what they want to send back. First one of chapter six. How are we doing here on time? All right. <clears throat> the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So what we just read in, in chapter five occurred over a period of time, of seven months. That's significant. The way you read it, it was a matter of a couple of days, not seven months. So they are absolutely devastated by this. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, these would be the magicians, the occult magic leaders, and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? We have to convince their God and then we're serious. And so they go to their spiritual leaders. Verse 3 is their answer. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him with a guilt offering. Return him a guilt offering. Now, you are processing that through your worldview, through your understanding. A sin offering a guilt offering which atones for our sin. That's not how they're looking at it. We are accepting responsibility for taking you. We thought we were greater. our God was greater than your God. Now we're not so sure, so we want to placate you with an offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Then they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They, these, are these priests and diviners, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the numbers of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. I told you earlier, five major cities in the territory of the Philistines, each one governed by a lord of the Philistines. That's why there's five. And we learned over this seven-month period, all five of the cities are affected. So why five golden tumors and five golden mice? As I said earlier, they must have discerned a connection between the rodents and the disease. That's why Exposa has reached the conclusion it's like a bubonic plague. Because our understanding today is that's what causes a bubonic plague. So this is sympathetic magic. That's what this is. This is sympathetic magic. We're sending the ark back with a guilt offering to show we're serious of gold shaped like the things that have devastated us for seven months so that their God will be placated and let us alone. Verse 5. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. I mean, again, you have to look at this through their theology, their worldview. We thought Dagon was greater than Yahweh. Now we're not so sure. As a matter of fact, we kind of think he's pretty powerful. And so we're going to get him back into their land so that he'll stop messing with us. Perhaps, I'm in the end of verse 5, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts? Notice this, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. Wow. Man, that is just a, an illustration again of how widespread miracles of the Exodus were in the ancient Near Eastern world. <clears throat> I mean, honestly, this, this is just a, in my Bible, I put a whole bunch of exclamation points after that. It's just demonstrating to us once again how widespread the knowledge of the Exodus was. And what the Philistines are doing is making a corresponding conclusion. As Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, dealt with Egypt, he's dealing with us in the same way. He is a great God. He's certainly more powerful than Dagon. And by the way, the note—they are not asking. We want to worship Yahweh Elohim alone. We want to convert you. That's not what they're saying. They just want the tumors to leave. And so, using sympathetic magic to get that uh, affected. Kevin, it seems like we have the same attitude
1: currently. uh, You know, 2023 with some of the countries around Israel uh, that. They
0: are definitely the enemies. They definitely want to destroy Israel. And it's just... Well, it is. There's a lot changing in the Middle East. The Economist this week, it's a magazine from England that I read, but Economist has an article, the lead article, The New Middle East, and they're talking about the changes going on in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia is about to recognize the state of Israel, which is an extraordinary development. You know, Morocco has is recognized Israel. Sudan has is recognized Israel. A few others have. And it, it's been interesting, but none of those are that is important. But if Saudi Arabia recognizes Israel, that's going to really change the political culture in the Middle East. But basically, um, yeah, I thought you were going to say this is how many Americans look at God through sympathetic magic. He's like my therapist. And I only like call on him when I'm in need. Otherwise, I don't want much to do with him. To me, that's how many Americans are looking at God. He's like the therapist. I only cry out to him when I have needs, when I'm a little bit in trouble. Otherwise, I got this one, God, I'll handle it. I'll see you later. That's how many Americans are treating God. Christian Smith calls them their God is a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God. And many evangelicals sitting in the pews, that's how really, when it all shakes down, that's how they're looking at God. They don't walk with him in daily fellowship, allowing him to, by his grace, transform in the image of Christ. So it's it's this is a this is a their view of God at this time by the Philistines reflects to some extent how some of the Israelis were looking at God. Let's bring the magic box to the battle and everything will be fine. You follow what I'm saying? I'm not trying to be mean spirited here. But God is trying to correct the view of Israel as to who he really is and reveal himself to the Philistines for who he really is. How's he doing that? Through his power. These spiritual leaders, it's really interesting, the language, don't harden your hearts. Listen, history tells us, Egypt, the Pharaoh, your experience teaches us now that the Hebrew God is a powerful God. Don't take him for granted. So you got to get his box back in Israel. He's dealt severely with them. Did did not send the people away, and they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart, two milk cows in which there's never been a yoke. Yoke the cows to the ark. Take their calves home away from them. That's really, really important. And take the ark of the Lord. Place it on a cart. Put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which are the part returned to him as a guilt offering. Send it off. Let it go its way and watch. Here's a test. If it goes on its way to its own land, to Beit Shemesh, Beit Shemesh is one of the Levitical cities, 12 miles from Ekron. Then it is he who has done us this great harm, but if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It just happened by coincidence. Now, that's really shrewd on the part of these Philistine priests and worshipers and diviners of Dagon. We're pretty sure this is all due to the Israeli God, but we want to set up a test. So take a, take a cart, a new one, you just make it out of wood, and two milk cows, and by milk mean they're still nursing their, their, their calves. Take the calves home, so that these milk cows, instead of, you know, if you have a mother cow that's milking its calf, she's right near the calf. She's always trying around where the calf to, to make sure he's got enough teeth. They've taken the calves and taken them home. The two milk cows holding this cart. Where are they going to go? This is a test. They're going to go where they want to go. <laughs> where they want to go. And so, I mean, it's a real test. If God, if the God of Israel is really superintending this, they're going to go to Beit Shemesh. Well, I say this, I was in the cattle business,
1: raising cows, one of the things, cows and like can Very dangerous.
0: <laughs> yes. Very dangerous. Very unstable, yeah. So, I mean, that's why the text is telling us something. You cannot predict what this milk cow is going to do. So I'm almost out of time, but can I can I go through this and make sure we get this done? Verse 10 now. The men did so, and the two milk cows, these nursing cows, and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. Again, Texas, really, they take their calves, so that's really important. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box, with the golden mice, images of the tumors, Verse 12, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beit Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. Absolutely unbelievable behavior. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beit Shemesh. Now the people of Beit Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beit Shemesh and stopped there. And a great stone was there, and they split the wood of the cart, offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, you should stop there for just a minute. This is a very commendable, honorable, worshipful thing for, this isn't the Joshua of the Old Testament, just his name is Joshua, he lives in Beth, but he did. He offered he offered these cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Leviticus chapter 1. The entire body of that those two cows is consumed on the altar. It's a sweet savor offering to Yahweh. Verse 15. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it. It's really important that the Levites do that because only no the Levites can handle the ark. So they're handling it correctly. Remember remember that Beit Shemesh is a Levitical city. It's one of the 48 cities of the Levites. So there would have been a lot of Levites there. And the box beside it, in it which were the golden figures, and set them on a great stone. And the men of Beit Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices in that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering. And it just details one from each one of these cities and the golden mice. <clears throat> the great stone beside which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of bet So That stone in Beit shamet outside of Beit where they offered the sacrifice is a memorial. That's what, that's what that verse is telling. It's now a memorial. When the author wrote this, you could go see that. It was a memorial. Now what I want you to do, this is really important. I want to, if I get to this before we're done. And he strikes his verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. The key phrase is, The ESV translates it, looked upon the ark. And when you read that in English, you think, what? They looked upon the ark. I mean, goodness, the ark came back. It's now the Levites had properly taken it from the cart, properly placed it there. What does it mean they looked upon it? Why is God upset with that? Because really the phrase that's translated looked upon is to stare with a gloating, prideful attitude. So God does not want these people in Beit Shemesh to think they had anything to do with this. Finally, we've won against the Philistines. Finally, we've got the Ark back and gloating with pride. So instead of thanking and praising and worshiping the Lord, so the text is telling us, God is not going to be pleased with any gloating, prideful attitude on the part of these citizens. And the people murmured because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beit Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So that messengers to the inhabitants Cariath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of God. Come down, take it up to you. Cariath-Jerim is ten miles farther up the valley, ten miles closer to Jerusalem. The ark of the covenant will stay at Cariath-Jerim for the next 20 years. How many? 20. Until David brings it to Jerusalem. God is a holy God. The ark is a symbol of his holiness that's manifested by the Shekinah glory that emanates from it. You cannot treat the ark as a talisman. And you cannot gloat over the ark that you had anything to do with it coming to your community. God demonstrated. It sounds harsh. But it's in the context of how he did this over and over again to Israel. Do not presume upon my grace. Do not presume upon my character that you have anything to do with what I'm doing. Treat me with holiness because I am a holy God. And so the the, the people, and we're going to read a little more about this. The people of Gerakirim are going to be blessed because the ark is there. They treated God with holiness and worshipful respect and honor. People of of Beit Shemesh did not, at least as the text is detailing us. As I said a moment ago, the ark is going to be at Keriatharim for 20 years until David brings it to Jerusalem. After there's a lot, the rest of the until we get into the next several chapters, uh, because we have yet been introduced to David yet, but we'll be finding out more about him in just a little bit. Now, a few minutes, are you with me? We, we covered, this is amazing, we covered three chapters in mm-hmm. one day. Chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six. We never do that. There must be something wrong with you. No, I'm just kidding. But, I mean, it's, it's one. It's it's so fabulous we get that entire narrative together in one class because it all fits together.
1: in these last uh, couple minutes, kind of make
0: bullet <coughs> points for us here uh, from these three chapters? Well, I think one is, as we were talking in response to an earlier question you made, we have to be very careful how we treat God. God is not our therapist. God is not some deistic God that he's sort of out there somewhere and you call upon him when you're in trouble. That's not what God wants from us. He sent his son to die for our sins to be resurrected in power and glory seated at the right hand of the Father so that we can have an intimate personal relationship with him. But that intimate personal relationship is to be a walk of loving obedience with him. We don't just cry out to him when when we're in trouble. We do cry out to him, but you know what I mean. It's It's a daily intimate. This is what Israel needs to learn. And they have to keep learning this lesson over and over and over again. The entire ceremonial system, the ceremonial law of Israel, and all that was associated with it—the food laws, the clothing laws—was to cause Israel to think about God in everything they do. You're preparing your meals, the kosher meals. You had to be very specific and very careful. You had to have a kind of a copy of the Book of Leviticus in front of you to make sure you're doing it the way God. Why? Because God wants you to think. He's giving you the food. He's giving you the bounty of your crops. He's giving you the bounty of your herds. He's given your vineyards the bounty of the wine you drink and so on. You thank him and praise him because everything you're doing to think about him. And do not think, secondly, that you can presume upon his grace or that you can demand his grace. And sometimes I think we forget that God is a holy God. And he causes calls upon us to be holy as he is holy. Now he makes us holy, declaring us holy and righteous through justification, but he's transforming us into a holy character. Love, joy, peace, patience, all those fruit of the Spirit and so on. We read the Old Testament. We, are, we don't have sacrifices that we have to Jesus is a once for all sacrifice. But this is still the point. As Israel was called to walk with God in loving obedience, we are called to walk with God in loving obedience. The metaphor that's in the book of of Galatians and in the book of of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is walk, 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 walk. Walk with God in love. Walk with God in obedience. Walk with God in reverence. That's what Paul says. And so that, to me, Israel wasn't doing that. They looked at the ark as a talisman, a magic, a therapeutic thing. That's not how God wants us to look at him. So there are the three things I would say. It's a call upon us to reverence and, 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 and worship a God who's done everything for us. We owe him everything. And one of the aspects, I thought my wife is helping me to remember this every day, one of the aspects of this is a thankful spirit. To so thank the Lord for everything. My wife has a journal, she does a lot of that, but she's now set up a special journal. And every day she just writes down the things she's thankful for, for that day from the Lord. Why is she doing that? Because, honey, I need to constantly be reminded to thank the Lord for everything. That's worship. That's walking with the Lord. That's not what Israel was doing at this point. And God is reminding them, this is who I am. This is who you are. Don't treat me like the Philistines are treating their God. That's not who I am. And so that's where we're at. I believe I've got to quit. So tomorrow we will start with verse 1 of chapter 7. Actually, it will not be tomorrow. It will be next Wednesday. You guys online with me? we okay? I'm going to pray. Father, we rejoice uh, in your goodness and your care for us. We thank you for Glenn. Thank you that that the surgery went so well, and he's up and around. We're so grateful for that. Help him in these therapy sessions. Help him to be careful and do what all they want him to do. Restore him to full health, we pray. Thank you for the many men here in the room that aren't here. A lot of guys aren't here today, so we pray for them, whatever their needs are going on in their lives. But Lord, help us here online, as well as the guys in the room, to remember who you are, to remember who we are, and to remember how Jesus has brought that gap together. We can walk with you in loving obedience and intimacy, personally, vibrantly, robustly, because of Jesus. Lord, you are a great God. You're a holy God. You're a perfect and righteous God. And you're calling us to be holy and righteous as you are. You save us from our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus. You proved you accepted death through his resurrection. You exalted him at the right hand to show the redemptive plan is complete. Now you're transforming us into the image of Jesus. We don't want to fight that. We don't look at you as just our big therapist. You are our Lord. You're our God. You've done everything. We owe you everything. Right? We have a thankful, worshipful spirit each day, being careful to thank you for everything, Our food as well as life itself. A good night's rest as well as friendship. Children as well as friends and neighbors. We want to owe you and and worshipfully thank you for everything. May we be people, especially here, men of strong faith and reflect that dependence and humility. Always asking, Lord, what do you want from me today as I walk with you in obedience? So we commit all this to you in the name
1: of your dear son. Amen.